Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spoštujmo. Respect words. Ithiki dimosiografia ja ti nadimetopisi ti zelitoriki stumisus. Etično novinarstvo proti sovražnemu govoru. Il potere delle parole. Hello and welcome to Respect Words. I'm Alan Bradish. This is a 20-part series looking at the issue of hate speech and the importance of the words we use and how we use them. More generally, we'll be looking at immigration in Ireland and in Europe. Later on in the programme, we'll have part two of our interview with Caroline Reid of the Irish Refugee Council. But first, we're joined by Press Ombudsman Peter Feeney. You're very welcome to the programme, Peter. Thank you. Perhaps we would start off, if you could explain to us what the role of the Ombudsman in relation to issues of potential hate speech in print is. It's, first of all, I have to say it's, it's somewhat limited because basically we offer a complaints handling process which is available for all national newspapers, most regional newspapers, and some online-only uh, news services such as the Journal. But we don't cover broadcasting, print or radio, and we don't cover social media such as Facebook or Twitter. So first thing we said is we don't cover the area that probably is most problematic in terms of hate speech, and that is social media. On average, how large a proportion of complaints made to your office are about questions of hate speech towards specific minorities? Quite a small number. We have... All uh, journalists who are working for newspapers and magazines, which are members of the Council, sign up to the Code of Practice. And that includes, uh, in the Code of Practice, there's a principle about not doing anything lightly to encourage prejudice or stir up hatred, etc. And that includes people on the basis of their race, religion, nationality, ethnicity, uh, members of the Trappist community, etc. So it, it's a very clear a requirement that you do not contribute to prejudice if you sign up to the code. But the truth is we get very few complaints about hate speech because generally speaking, it, it's, it's not coming up in our newspapers, it's not coming up in magazines, it's coming up in online commentary and Twitter and uh, Facebook. And if we get calls about that, we have to say, hands up, I'm sorry, we can't deal with it because Facebook, uh, Twitter, etc. are not members of the Press Council of Ireland. Now, Sometimes we, there have been problems in the past, particularly about the reporting of travellers. And there's been one or two complaints over the years about uh, commentators talking about immigration where we have upheld complaints. But I have to say it's not a major concern for people who contact our office. We get about 300 complaints a year. And I would say you're only talking about a very small number, less than a handful, which would be related to hate speech. Do you think that this is related to the, how the Ombudsman's Office handles it? Do you think that this is a, an example no, of I how successful the office has been? Yeah. No, I think it's probably more than anything else related to the fact that um, uh, if, we can't look, if we can't deal with complaints on social media, then we have no relevance for that platform for where hate speech is found. And I think most people's experience is that it is Facebook and Twitter where this problem occurs. If you look at our newspapers... Um, you know, you may dislike some of the things which um, commentators may occasionally say, and you may query whether they could be associated with hate speech. But there's a fair degree of license for expression of opinion, as long as you don't breach principles of the code, and that is you stir up hatred uh, uh, on the basis of nationality or, or race or whatever else it is. How does your office measure when an article has gone too far? Are there any specific limits that you, you look for? 
Well, of course, ultimately, it's it's about judgment because um, we, we have a commitment to freedom of expression, which I think is fairly important, and we have to place significant emphasis on that. But, of course, there are limits to freedom of expression. And if a columnist or a news reporter deliberately stirs up hatred by making sort of sweeping generalizations, like all immigrants are X, Y, or Z, or all people from Africa are A, B, and C, then they are moving from their right of freedom of expression into another area where they are uh, abusing that right by um, stirring up hatred against specific groups. Um, But I think most Irish journalists know the limitations and they know what they can and can't write and are careful enough to avoid uh, crossing that line where it moves from expressing a view to actually expressing a view which is damaging to other people. It's all about the common good. What is in the public interest? And it's in the public interest to have freedom of expression. That's actually terribly important. But it's also in the public interest not to oppress minorities who are already disadvantaged, minorities who are already singled out for uh, treatment uh, unfairly in some, some areas. So there's sort of a balance in that. And it's up to our judgment to ultimately decide if something breaches that or not. Now, everything you would con- consider would be based on complaints that would be made to you from the public. Is, isn't that right? Well, Yes. Well, we would also take uh, complaints from lobby groups or pressure groups uh, looking after immigrant rights or looking after uh, human rights, etc. So most of our complaints are from private individuals, but we also take complaints from some uh, organizations as well. So what is the what is the process uh, initially if someone wishes to make a complaint? Right. Well, if they contact our office by phone or email, um, we, we always say in the first instance, you have to write to the editor of the publication and you give the editor two weeks to reply. And if you're not satisfied with the editor's response or if the editor has ignored your uh, email or letter, then you can open a formal complaint with the press ombudsman's office. And we then contact the editor and say there's a formal complaint and we ask the complainant to make submission and we ask the uh, editor to make submission. And then we, we'd see if we can conciliate a resolution. Frequently, complaints can be resolved by a publication of a letter, publication of a clarification or a correction, in some cases an apology, some case, cases offering a person the right to, to write an op-ed. So there are ways of resolving a complaint. If that isn't possible, then it goes to the press ombudsman for a decision. And I can uphold the complaint or not uphold the complaint. If I uphold the complaint, the publication has to publish my full decision without any editorial comment, with due prominence. And what that basically means is, if the original article is on page six, then the, uh, my decision has to also be on page six and has to be equally prominently uh, displayed. There's also an appeal process. So if either the complainant or the publisher isn't happy with my decision, they can appeal on limited grounds to the press council. And that gives us a second bite of the cherry, as it were, because the press council, which is made up of 13 people, seven of whom are independent members and six represent the industry, uh, they look at the complaint and they can decide to uphold my decision or to overturn my decision. Now, a a lot of what you do is about generating conciliation and yes. working with both the 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 industry and the complainant to to try and and work around get to a position where a, a, a decision doesn't need to be made by by your own office yes. does yes. that how successful is that process well what we have excuse me what we have found is that generally speaking um most newspapers want to try and resolve complaints And in some instances where uh, something is wrong, 
once it's pointed out to the journalist or to the editor and they say, yeah, that is wrong, the effect of that is that the next time it comes to the same issue, they're a bit more careful, uh, that they, they, they take on board some of the views expressed by the press council or press ombudsman. So its effect is that it resolves a lot of complaints fairly easily, but also it leads to improved standards in newspapers afterwards. <clears throat> and what I'd emphasize too is that our process is free and it's quick and it's independent. The average time for a decision to come out is between one and two months. There's no cost to anybody. And the press council is independent of the uh, media industry because there's a majority of independent members at all times in it. Is there a time limit on how, uh, how yes. long after publication someone can make a complaint? Yes. A complaint can only be made up to three months after an article has been published. So you have to get your complaint into the press ombudsman's office within three months of the article. That includes allowing two weeks for the editor to reply. So if you want to make a complaint, you really would want to be getting onto it, certainly within two months of publication, because allowing for two weeks for the editor to reply or not reply, as the case may be, uh, to get all in within three months, you want to get moving fairly quickly. And we do encounter problems with uh, people who are out of time on a regular basis. They, they don't come to us until well after the three months are up, and we, we can't consider those complaints. That also applies to online uh, material, which may remain online. It's from the date it first went up online. Is the, the clock starts ticking from that date. Okay. Are there, are there any circumstances in which that um, that deadline can be extended due to um, extenuating circumstances? Or is, is it would have to solid? be very exceptional. Typically, it would be, say, illness or uh, somebody who's out of the country. But very, very infrequently, almost all the time, three months is, is, is absolute, that there isn't any extension. It, if the newspaper editor was avoiding it or something like that deliberately, we might get an extension. But generally speaking, there isn't an extension available. But most people, if they have an issue with something they see in a newspaper magazine or in an online uh, news service, they come to us within a few days. I mean, most of the complaints we get are, I saw something in the paper last Sunday, I saw something in the paper on Tuesday. They're not something I saw two or three months ago. It's exceptional for us to get uh, complaints which are uh, out of time. Do you find that uh, your findings are ever used in subsequent uh, court actions? Now, that's interesting because... The, one of the reasons the press council was set up 10 years ago was to try to reduce the number of defamation actions because, as you know, defamation is hugely expensive. Uh, it's very slow, and it's, uh, it's, it's a huge risk for anybody to go down the defamation route. Um, and it also hangs over you, certainly for several years and maybe even longer. So the press council was set up as a kind of a fast and independent means of dealing with complaints. Um, we don't handle money in any way, so we never award compensation. We never have any involvement with any suggestion that uh, any payment should be made. Nothing to, you don't come to us if you're looking for money for something which is written. You can only come to us if you're looking for justice or a correction. Um, and uh, we, we would encourage people to consider using press council services first. If they want to sue afterwards for defamation, they're free to do so because the time limit doesn't apply. They've a good two years afterwards to uh, consider any defamation action or whatever. But uh, we're not involved in anything to do with money. You mentioned earlier that a great many editors are, are quite happy um, to come to terms or to come to conciliation yep. uh, once it's made obvious uh, to them that there's a problem. How large a part do you think that sanctions from the ombudsman plays in the part of, of newspapers coming, coming sure. to terms? I mean, our only sanction, as I said, is the publication of a decision if a complaint is upheld. 
I, I know that all editors hate publishing a politician because it certainly has reputational damage for newspaper. Readers of the newspaper, if they were to read a series of decisions by the Ombudsman opposing complaints against the newspaper, would begin to lose confidence in that newspaper. And that is hugely damaging. So the deterrent of publication decisions is a very considerable deterrent. And some editors may, of course, decide that it's better to engage in a conciliation process than to have a decision upheld against them. But either way, unless the complainant is happy with the conciliation, it goes on to the press ombudsman. Both sides have to accept whatever compromise is offered. If either side says no, then it becomes a formal decision by the press ombudsman. Do you think there are any improvements that could be made um, to the current regulations governing how your office well, works? I, I think the, the main improvement has to be, and that is that the social media, the Facebooks, the Twitters of this world face up to their responsibility that they are publishing a lot of material which is injurious to children, a lot of material which is injurious to uh, weak, to people who are defenseless, to immigrants, to uh, people of different races and ethnicity, etc. I think Facebook and 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 uh, Twitter, etc., have to accept their responsibility. It's beginning to happen. It's happening very slowly, and they're being driven towards it by public demands that uh, it's not acceptable for Facebook to say we don't publish any of this. We just simply host it. And the issue you have is with the person who wrote the comment in the first place. Um, Facebook and uh, Twitter are very powerful platforms in which people can express uh, hateful views very easily and and bully and cyberbully and threaten children, etc. And I think governments have to put considerable pressure on uh, social media to face up their responsibilities. I don't really see a role for the press council in that because one of the basic points of the press council is that all journalists sign up to the code of practice of the press council. So journalists are aware of our code. The Facebook of this world is populated by ordinary members of the public writing their comments. They haven't signed up to any code. And it wouldn't be reconcilable to have one set of rules for print journalism and a different set of rules for Facebook. So I don't think the Press Council has a role in that. But that doesn't mean there isn't a huge responsibility on governments and the European Commission, etc., to put pressure on social media to face up to their responsibilities and deal with hate speech and deal with complaints and deal with the right to be forgotten, etc. Is there a particular government department to which the Ombudsman's Office reports? No, because we are independent of government. Um, we were, back to 10 years ago, uh, when it was decided to set up a press council, it was felt it was very important that we would be independent of government and independent of newspapers. So we're not subject to any government department. The 2009 Defamation Act recognises the role of the press council, but we're not subject to any government department. So the government can't tell us to do anything, and they've no role in the appointment of any of the members of the press council either. And I think that's important because otherwise there would be a danger of freedom of expression if government felt that they could control the newspapers through the press council. Hmm. But presumably the, the office is governed under a specific act of the Oireachtas. Yes, well, it's not governed. The, the 2009 Defamation Act recognises the function of the press council. They looked at what we do, the government, and passed a ministerial order saying that we met the criteria for a press council. So we are recognised in legislation, but we're not subject to legislation. So the government can't order us to do anything. The only thing they could do is they could withdraw that recognition. Theoretically, they could withdraw that recognition if we became if we start functioning badly. But we, other than that, they have no uh, say in what we do at all. 
my experience is, and I don't want to sound complacent, is that both the newspaper industry and the government seem to be of the view that the press council has worked over the last 10 years and it has led to opportunities for ordinary people to seek redress for something inaccurate and published about them, something which uh, undermines children's safety or something which breaches privacy. It's that kind of area that I think there's general satisfaction with our performance. What would your advice be to members of the public if they see examples of hate speech? Um, my advice would be always to engage, not to just simply accept it and say, well, that's just life. Um, I think um, it's, it's important. It's about empowerment. You, if you're living in this country, irrespective of whether you've got an Irish passport or anything else, if you're living in this country, you are entitled to, to not be subject of, of uh, prejudice in your newspapers and magazines and do something about it. Either do it as an individual or if you don't feel powerful enough or uh, to do it on your own if you have a language issue, etc. Go to your uh, lobby group or pressure group or a group that looks after immigrant needs or whatever else it is and ask them to consider making a complaint to the President's office and we will pursue it uh, uh, and do our absolute best to see that justice is done. Peter Feeney, Press Ombudsman, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Alan. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, now we move on to the last part of our programme. And um, last week you heard the first part of this interview. Um, this is Sally Galliana speaking to Caroline Reid from the Irish Refugee Council. What's, what's your strategy? Do you have? Do you sit down and draw a media strategy? Because, all, I mean, all these inter- interviews are best practice. So how do you do it? Do you think it's very important to have a new strategy or the most important thing when it comes to social media is to be able to react very quickly and pull an article or information or statistics that will actually challenge what is being said? I think um, trying to have, from my own experience and my time with the organisation, trying to have a long-term communication strategy has not worked so you do sit down you do that planning maybe you look at a window of six months or a year and you might be addressing different issues and different things that you want to achieve but then something will happen external and you have to throw that entire plan out the window because things move in a completely different direction so you do have I guess you have a plan in terms of you know if something does happen as an organization it might just be a short statement but we will maybe make a comment on things especially when we feel that they're of importance to the people that we work with so like you do have a strategy in terms of response and maybe a strategy of um what you would put out in your page and what you wouldn't but in terms <laughs> trying to plan long time I, I, long term i did learn the hard way that it mightn't always work out the way that you uh are thinking it will work out so I guess a good example of that with us was we had a six-month communication strategy around a campaign work calling for an end to direct provision but then the government announced the working group so that completely halted this six-month plan that we had another example I guess being that when you were dealing with the constantly changing um, environment in Europe and Europe's response to that and new programs springing up like relocation and resettlement and then the rise in anti-sentiment that you see maybe more so in other European countries that other it can feel a lot of the time like you're firefighting and I think that's just the nature um, of the area that we work in like and I like I always joke with my uh, 
my the, my former boss, who, who was the lady who hired me, was it took me a year to realise, oh, this is just the way it is. It's always this chaotic and, you know, challenging and you really have to think on your feet, react sometimes on your feet. But I guess a good lesson learned is that maybe there's times when you don't react and for the reasons um, such as misinformation like wait till the dust settles like is this an actual story did this actually happen or wait till some of the facts surface because in that kind of rapid news media environment you can find out two days later that actually a lot of the basis of breaking news stories was in fact untrue or false Um, so sometimes the best thing to do or the best practice or the best strategy is not to have that gut Reaction and to wait and see, see th- where you know when things calm down a bit, see what the actual lay of the land is, and then make an informed response rather than a knee jerk response. So, you have to be in best in some ways in what you are. I was going to ask you about that, about the, the, the fact that I went to work in this particular area that, as you said, is so changing and chaotic, and sometimes you have to be, you know, you have to believe in what you are you are going to write. So what is more important when it comes to social media for organizations like this? Do you think it's more about knowing how the technology works or is also believe the message that you are putting out there? Or is it a mix of both? Well, I think you definitely have to believe the message you put out there because I'm not sure how you'd survive in this role if you didn't or how you'd, I guess, rest easy with yourself. But I guess it is also you do have to have an understanding of the technology i think you 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 build an understanding of the community of people on your page and in some cases like some people will be very active and very supportive in terms of sharing posts or comments um and then there'll be people who are very active in ways you don't want to be on your page but i think um Like, if we're ever in doubt, we would hold off putting something out until we've maybe had a discussion about it with maybe a group, with like colleagues within the team, especially if it's an issue that we think is sensitive. Um, like, there's times when you do have to make a judgment call, and that judgment call maybe would be at the end of the day, we're constantly thinking about the community of people that we work with and we work for and the impact on them. So there will be times when you might hold back from communicating something in a public forum like Facebook or Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's other times when it's really vital that you do. Like So maybe in terms of significant changes or taking some complicated change in legislation and trying to put it into layman's terms, Because I might work with this organization, but when I read some of the like legislative documents or you know acts, it's I can't understand it. You know, so it's about I guess sometimes it's a great tool for getting word out quickly when you need to get it out quickly. Mm-hmm. So if that might be if there's a change in legislation could affect a deadline for people to make certain applications or certain steps, like family reunification would be a big one. It's a really useful channel to share quite rapidly and quite widely. Um, what you want to share so say for example um, on Thursday I would have released a survey that we're doing and it would have gone out through Facebook and Twitter but I would have also emailed maybe 10 to 15 uh, support groups and organizations asking their, them for their help and when I got into the office today we had 211 responses to the survey so that's through social media primarily mm-hmm. 
uh, what will be the article or the the, or the post that got um, from your own point of view, obviously your personal point of view, the best response? What I'm finding at the moment is, like, generally speaking, people are responding or engaging a lot more with positive news stories, and I think that's uh, it's like indicative of maybe that toll or that like because there is constant demand, there's there's constant bad news stories that people can, I guess, sometimes want to sh shut that off. I wrote my thesis on the idea of compassion fatigue and like, are, is that what we're suffering? And the conclusion I came from that is it's more to do with demand fatigue than compassion fatigue. So what I'm finding on our page is if I post a story with a positive aspect to it, it goes viral quite easily. People share it, people comment on it, people like it. Um, whereas I'm finding now when you're trying to put out maybe the more hard-hitting, harsh realities people aren't engaging with it as much. Um, so like some of the, I guess, most viral posts we've had, I think it's always a sense of humor as well goes a long way. So something that people, that it's again, I guess that's that idea of maybe tackling a harsh reality, but with, uh, you know, with a vein of humor. So people kind of latch onto that. And again, you'll maybe have a positive um, response. But I think one of the best posts on Facebook, I actually stole it from Twitter, so a lady had put out a tweet and it was around um, the time, like in 2015 where there was a lot of media saturation and this idea of like, you know, why are they all men and they have smartphones and they have t-shirts you know, they're Nike they can't be refugees, so she was tweeting in response to that and she's like yes, she's like, people fleeing Syria do have smartphones, she said, because they're fleeing war, not the 1890s <laughs> and it was just brilliant, so I screamed grabbed it you know with her credit to her and put it on the Facebook page so sometimes the mediums do cross and that just like people just went to town on that it was shared I don't know how many hundred of times like you know thousands of likes lots of engagement in the comment section so it's uh, I think sometimes humor can be such a powerful way to challenge and to, to highlight the ridiculousness of some of the you know the tropes and the the stereotypes that are out there the, the the lack of understanding i guess it's this notion that you assume someone has to be fleeing poverty to be a refugee or you know that if they're male they're somehow less deserving of protection you know so it's um posts like that i've found are the most successful And that was Caroline Reed from the Irish Refugee Council talking to Sally Galliana. That's the end of our programme for this week. Thank you to Press Ombudsman Peter Feeney and to series producer Donie Tarrant. Next week, solicitor and legal expert Caharo Higgins will be speaking to Donie about the Incitement to Hatred Act. Thank you for listening and goodbye until next week. Respect. Sevome. Respeto. Spostuimo. Respect words. Ηθική δημοσιογραφία για την αντιμετώπιση της ρητορικής του μίσους. Ήτιτσνο νοβιναρστό πρωτισοβράζνε μου γόβορου. Ηλποτέρε δελε παρόρε. Respect for Worten, respect for Menschen gegen Hassreden. Ατιστάλατ χαγγιάν σόλουν. Ριπορτοκ ίντερουκ τουδούσιτασοκ αγιούλοδατε πεσίδ έλλαν. Μη μπέτσοιουκ αμάσικο. Respect. Λα όντα λοκάλ διανταλουθία κόντρα λος δισκούρσος δε όδιο. Μάσορ ο Eri sorok te etiku, ikwena kainte fuha. 
Ethical journalism against hate speech. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Respect words. Supported by the Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme of the European Union.